0: we come to the 25th and final exposition of the book of Daniel. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn there. I'm glad no one applauded or said amen. (laughs) Daniel chapter 12. The book, as you will recall now, is inspired by God and was written to Encourage the exiled Jews of that day by revealing his sovereign plan to them, a plan that included what he is going to do throughout redemptive history, especially over the many years with respect to Gentile domination. Here we have learned of the successive stages of Gentile domination through the centuries, leading to the most vile and wicked ruler of all, the Antichrist, who will be praised by the vast majority of the world's population. People that are naive, people that are depraved, like those that make up the neo-pagan world of liberalism in our country and around the world today. But we've also seen how the greatest conqueror of all, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, The Messiah will defeat all those who stand against him, all those who stand against his covenant people, Israel. We have seen how his righteous judgment against them will one day come to fruition. And he will, according to Zechariah 12 and verse 10, pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And over the course of this study, we have been immersed in grand truths with respect to the holiness of God, the majesty, the transcendence of God, the sovereignty of God, his faithfulness and his love towards all of the redeemed and what a comfort to know that our God is the unassailable sovereign over all of his creation that his kingdom purposes cannot be thwarted by man or by devil and as we have seen a day of divine retribution is coming a day of judgment is coming upon this earth now while Such a claim may cause liberals to hyperventilate on their yoga mats and choke on their Starbucks. Nevertheless, it is the truth, and we must proclaim that truth to them that they might know the one true and living God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we examine these final verses in Daniel, I wish to answer a criticism that occasionally comes my way from listeners outside the church. They are probably listening today. And that criticism is basically, why do you interpret Bible prophecy literally rather than figuratively, rather than spiritually? And indeed, I believe the prophetic scriptures, like all scriptures, should be interpreted in a literal, in a normal, natural way in a sense that is consistent with the original intent of the author, the Old Testament authors, of course taking into consideration figures of speech and symbols. Moreover, I believe that the New Testament continues the narrative of the Old Testament prophets. It does not redefine them or reinterpret them. And so as a result, real practically speaking, I believe that Israel is Israel and not the church I do not believe Israel has replaced the church I believe for example that Daniel's prophecies of Israel's judgment and future restoration will occur both spiritually and physically Jesus will actually reign on the earth in an intermediate kingdom between his second coming and the final consummations of all things in the eternal state. And this is a position known as premillennialism, as most of you know. Now other very godly people, friends of mine, um, believe differently. They use a spiritual hermeneutic. Hermeneutics is the the science and art of biblical interpretation. And so they believe that the New Testament um, transforms or transcends the Old Testament storyline rather than continues it. This requires a spiritual interpretation. And so, in varying ways, they will look for hidden meanings embedded in some of the Old Testament passages, and they look to New Testament revelation to help shape and inform them. They believe Jesus and the New Testament authors, therefore, reinterpret or redefine or spiritualize the kingdom message of the Old Testament. And as a result, they believe that Israel has been replaced permanently by the church and the promised blessings to to Israel are, are merely spiritual and ultimately they are to be interpreted in a spiritual way, not a literal way. And they understand, for example, Revelation to be a description of the current reign of Christ in this present age. A position known as all millennialism and so they would believe that we are living in the kingdom now spiritually now this is not a test of orthodoxy not at all but I do want to defend just for a moment why I interpret and we interpret as a church the scriptures the way we do and in order to do that I want you to turn for just a few minutes to 2nd Peter chapter 1 we're going to look at verses 16 through 21 just for a moment the context here, Peter is preparing for his crucifixion. Uh, he knew he was about to die, a horrible death, as Jesus has promised. And uh, we read about that in verse 14 of Second Peter 1. But what's fascinating is what is foremost on his mind as he faces his imminent death is the absolute importance of fighting against false teachers who he calls, in chapter 3 and verse 16, the untaught and unstable, who distort the Scriptures to their own destruction. In chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, There will be also false teachers among you, in other words, within the church, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. In other words, they will smuggle them in. The original language helps us understand. They will smuggle them in under the guise of something else and we see this for example in the neo pagan neo marxist woke social justice social gospel movement that has invaded the church so in chapter 1 of second peter he like the apostle paul argues for the absolute supremacy of scripture that has originated from god himself and therefore must never be added to detracted from or in any way redefined by fallen man he is passionate about a proper understanding of scripture which will lead to sanctification if you don't know and understand the scriptures you will not be able to apply them to your life by the power of the spirit and grow into conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ it's just not going to happen so he is passionate about this so in Second Peter 1 Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. In other words, moral excellence and knowledge will promote sanctification. He goes on to say, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted. In other words, like the false teachers, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So what he's saying is the key to salvation and sanctification is a high view of Scripture and a total surrender to all that God has said. Something the false teachers refuse to do, as he will go on to say. So in light of that, in chapter 1 and verse 16... He says this, For we do not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, referring to what they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And then he says this. So, or it could be translated and, we have the prophetic word made more sure. Prophetic word refers to the declarations of the mind and the will of God in scripture. We have the prophetic word made more sure. Which means more certain, more reliable. More reliable, more certain, more sure than what? And the answer is our own perceptions. Our own experience. What we saw with our own eyes, what we heard with our own ears. In other words, what he's saying is, friends, Scripture is more reliable than anything you know or anything you think you know. Anything that you have ever experienced. And we all know that when we relay something that we've experienced, we always leave something out that we forgot or we may distort something or whatever. Not Scripture. It is absolutely pure. Scripture is breathed out by God. And so the omniscient one who cannot lie is the one who speaks. And his infinite perfections in his character, his very honor is at stake in his word. And that's why he goes on to say... To which you do well to pay attention. Pay attention literally means to be consumed, to be controlled by as to a lamp shining in a dark place. If you've ever been in a pitch black cave, you know what it's like. You follow the light if you see one and obviously the unregenerate, they grope in the darkness of their own depravity and in the world and only a fixed focus. On the Word of God on Scripture will give them the light to see Christ and to make their way to glory by faith in him so we are to pay attention to this light until he says the day dawns referring to the eschatological day of Christ we read about that that same phrase in Zechariah 12 and through 14 and the morning star arises in your hearts in other words, we keep watching that light until the Lord returns in all of his glory and judgment and the morning star rises in our hearts. Referring to the complete and perfect revelation of Christ when we are finally in his presence and we see him as he is when we are made like him. So what Peter is saying is Scripture is more sure, it's more certain, more reliable than anything you have ever experienced, anything you have ever thought, anything you have ever conceived, anything you have ever imagined. Now back to 2 Peter one twenty, he says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's interpretation. Fascinating term, interpretation. It means to release or unloose or to unravel something. And here he's referring to private unraveling. This doesn't speak so much of of, of how we interpret scripture, but the source of scripture, the origin of scripture. In other words, no part of God's revelation originated from or finds its source in human experience or human wisdom, human cogitation, human ingenuity, whatever. Therefore, there's nothing subjective or secretive about Scripture that requires my input or your input in order to make it relevant, to make it somehow understandable or authoritative or sufficient so that God can somehow, with our help, accomplish His purposes through Scripture. No, it stands on its own. Its source is divine. All scripture is breathed out by God, Second Timothy 3.16. It's not tainted by fallible human wisdom. It's not tainted by human ideas or experience. By the way, that same term interpretation is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis 40, where it describes how Joseph received direct revelation from God in the form of a dream and he was very careful not to in any way taint what God said with any of his own interpretations when he inc- communicated it to others. And Peter goes on in verse 20 and he says, For no prophecy was ever made. In other words, it never comes from, um, it never finds its origin by an act of human will, human authorship. But men moved by, literally carried along by The Holy Spirit spoke from God. So clearly, Peter wants us to know the source, the origin of Scripture. It is from God. It is not from man. Therefore, and this is the passion of my heart, do not trifle with the truth. Do not tamper with the text. God said it, I believe it, and I bow before it. That's it. You don't need me to say, well, I know that's what God said, but that's not what he meant. Let me tell you what he meant. Now, beloved, what you do is you move from interpretation to revelation, and I am not inspired, neither of you. So that's why I'm very careful to stay with the text. Notice men were moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. The term moved, uh, pharaoh in the original language, it's the same Greek verb that is translated made in verses 21, verse 18, and verse 17. In other words, the word of God is the word of God. It's not the word of man. He not only inspired men to write it by the superintending work and guidance of the Holy Spirit, he's the one that made it. This is his word. This is why the Bible is authoritative. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, I also find it interesting in verse 21 he says men spoke in the miracle of inspiration the Holy Spirit caused these men to speak like I'm speaking to you right now well what do we do when we speak well we use normal language to communicate what we are saying to other people so they can understand us there's no hidden meaning there, there's no deeper meaning, there's no secret Bible codes, there's no secret symbolism that we need to discover. There's no, as I hear from time to time, fuller sense that must be discovered or redefined or, or reinterpreted or spiritualized. Now, of course, there are rules of interpretation. There are rules of hermeneutics. Even when we speak, we understand that. I mean, we have to look at the context, we have to look at vocabulary, metaphor, symbols, figures of speech. We all understand that. But we obey the normal rules of grammar, the syntax, the authorial intent, and all of those things. And so it's for this reason that I reject the allegor- allegorical, spiritualized method of interpretation, especially with respect to Bible prophecy the Jews didn't understand it that way they weren't looking for some secret hidden meaning They just knew this was what was promised to them and by the way it is it's for this reason if I can add something else I want to say this kindly I don't give two hoots for your word of knowledge or your special prophecy or your ecstatic gibberish or something that God told you when you had a quiver in your liver or somehow you heard from somewhere, maybe your imagination, or it could be a demon. I don't care anything about that. The canon of scripture is closed. Jude three makes that very clear. It's for this reason, we contend earnestly in the Greek for the once for all delivered for the faith, the scriptures, which handed down to the saints. And that's what it says. We contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints, and then when it comes to Bible conf- prophecy, I have no confidence in those obscure, secret kind of allegorical, spiritualized interpretations. And while I respect those that differ, um, th- that is just not my position. I want to be very careful with that. In Revelation twenty-one eighteen, we read, "I testify to everyone who hears the words." This is actually twenty-two eighteen. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. All I want to know is what God has said. And all I have to say to you is what God has said. This is why Peter said in verse 19, we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention. And so this is why we use a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic when interpreting Scripture. God moved, men spoke, and we can understand it, the normal meaning of language. And so when we look at any passage of Scripture, we look at it in a straightforward reading and interpretation, like in the book of Daniel. By the way, this is why Jesus said in Matthew twenty-four, fifteen, that we are to understand, he says, the book of Daniel. Well, enough of all of that. I'm sure my critics are perfectly satisfied now, and we can rejoice and share heaven together. All right, now let's look at these final verses in Daniel 12. You will recall now the first three verses of Daniel 12 reveals to us three precursors um, of the establishment of Christ's earthly millennial kingdom. You will recall that Israel is going to experience a time of unparalleled tribulation. Then there will be supernatural deliverance. And finally, the kingdom's citizens will be raised from the dead. And now the angelic messenger that is speaking to Daniel turns his attention to daniel in verse 4 where we pick it up this morning he says this but as for you daniel conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase then i daniel looked and behold two others were standing one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river And one said to the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end of these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven, and swore by him who lives forever, that it would be for a time, times, and a half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, All these events will be completed. As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, My Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. And none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days! But as for you, go your way to the end, then you will enter into the rest. And rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Now here, beloved, I believe we have a chronology of the great tribulation. Let's look at it more closely. In verse 4, but as for you, Daniel, conceal these words. It literally means I want you to preserve these words i want you to protect them them they are prophetic divine inspired revelation do this he says until the end of time seal up the book he says close up that's what it means Um, secure all of this material until the end of time which is a a reference to um, the the tribulation period that's the way it's used in chapter 11 verse 35 as well as verse 45 and then he says something fascinating he says many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase the concept of going back and forth is the idea that they're going to run about trying to find answers to explain all of the chaos and judgment that's coming upon the world during the time of tribulation and he says as they do so knowledge will increase in other words they're going to read Daniel what you have preserved to the end and their knowledge concerning what God has promised will become clear to them. Verse 5, Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. He's referring to two other angels. This is similar to the vision described in chapter 8, verses 13 through 16. And evidently these two angels who are lesser in status to the grand angel that's dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, as we will read. Evidently, these two angels were talking about God's plan as it relates to the affairs of men. And so they asked this question, and one said to the man dressed in linen, one of these angels said to the more glorious angel, who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? In the context here, how long will it be till the end of Daniel's 70th week, the end of the tribulation? Now I want to pause for a moment because I'm always fascinated with angels, uh, especially their curiosity. First uh, 1 Peter 1:12. 1, we read, it was revealed to them, it referring to the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow in verse 11. It was revealed to them, referring to the Old Testament prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you and through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. These things, catch this now, into which angels long to look. I mean, think of all the righteous men and women of the Old Testament who longed to understand those things that were revealed, even those things that they had written. But now we have seen these things, we have heard these things, we we understand who Christ is. Now think about this. Even the angels who are not recipients of redemption. Even the angels long to look at what God has done, what he is doing, what he is going to do through Christ Jesus our Lord. And again, you think about it, I mean, they're, they're all around us, watching us, doing... I, I can't wait to get to heaven. In fact, I, I can't wait to meet my guardian angels and, and apologize to them for what I put them through. But... <laughs> But they're longing to look at these things. Even the Old Testament prophecy, even Daniel, as we, as we see here in this text, he, he didn't understand all of it and he wanted to know more. But think how much more we know now and how much more is yet to be revealed in glory one day. And we get a flavor of this in Daniel twelve six. He says, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? In verse 7, I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, which, by the way, su- uh, suggests his, his supernatural authority and power, as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever. And here we get a sense of the profound solemnity of the oath that he is taking here, the oath he is about to utter. And, and notice the phrase, he swore by him who lives forever. I love that phrase, the one who lives forever. And who is this? Well, it's the triune God. 1 Timothy 6, Paul says in verse 15, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. to think someday we shall see him as he is and he will see us we see a similar scene by the way in Revelation 10 beginning in verse 5 then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it and there will be delay no longer he says So, again, back to the question, how long will it be until the end of these things? And the angelic messenger swears by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half a time. Again, as we've studied, this is a reference to the last three and a half years of the tribulation of Daniel's 70th week. And then he adds this, and as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. So God is going to allow the Antichrist to shatter his covenant people, those whom he chose to be holy and, but who refused to believe in their Messiah. And finally, at the end of the three and a half years of unprecedented persecution, what he calls here the end of these wonders, Finally, the power of Jewish deception will be shattered and their unbelief will be broken. Finally, in their state of brokenness and humiliation, they will believe and they will be saved. You may recall how 17 years earlier, God revealed the same truth to Daniel. It's recorded in Daniel 7 and verse 25. There we read, he will speak out, referring to the Antichrist, Against the Most High and wear down the Saints of the highest one and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law and they will be given into his hand for a time times and a half a time and then he goes on in verse 26 and he says but the court will set for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. My, how I long for that day. And in that day, Israel will finally function according to its Intended purpose that we read in Scripture as a chosen nation. So many passages speak to this. I think of Isaiah 41 beginning in verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not rejected you. My, what a promise. Exodus 19, verse 2, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. At this time, dear friends, Israel will finally enjoy world supremacy in the coming kingdom where it will fulfill its grand purpose of being a blessing to all of the nations of the world as asserted in the original covenant that we read in Genesis 12 and verse 3. Where God says, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, some will ask, and appropriately so, what about the church age? What about us, the church where we live right now? Well, this, this needs to be seen, the church age needs to be seen as an ongoing fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that is going to culminate in the Messianic kingdom. We are not some disconnected parentheses. No, no, not at all. The church shares in the promises of Israel, but not in her unique identity as a chosen nation. There is a distinction here. You will recall in Romans 11, beginning in verse 16, Paul described Israel as the natural branches from a cultivated olive tree, some of which have been broken off Uh, for the present time due to, quote, a hardening of heart. And Paul also reminds the Gentile church that we are the wild olive branches. We are the ones that have been grafted into, quote, the rich root, referring to the rich root of Abrahamic covenantal blessings and privileges that God promised to him. So indeed, the church shares these promises with Israel, but never takes her place as a nation. And despite their rebellion, God has not abandoned his chosen people. Paul understood this, you will recall. In Romans 9, he speaks of Israel's election. In Romans 10, he speaks of Israel's defection. And finally, in Romans 11, he speaks of Israel's salvation when the Messiah returns. And what an amazing story it all is, right? This is his story, the story of Christ, with Israel being a magnificent object lesson of how God deals with all mankind. He saves some, he judges others, all to reveal his glory through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is both lamb and lion. So, again, back to the question in Daniel 12:6. How long will it be until the end of these wonders? answer for a time times and a half of time and as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people all these events will be completed folks it's important to remember that God revealed these events to Moses we read about this in Leviticus 26 as well as Deuteronomy 28 and 38 or or 30 and repeatedly He speaks about it in Isaiah for example in chapter 4 of Isaiah beginning in verse 3 it will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be, Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. Another one in chapter 6 of Isaiah, beginning in verse 11. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet, and here's the promise, there will be a tenth portion in it. There's always going to be a remnant, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Likewise, Isaiah chapter 26, beginning in verse 20. We read, Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. We read the same types of promises in Jeremiah 30. We read about them in Zechariah 11, Zechariah 13, Zechariah 14, and in Jesus' Olivet Discourse in, in Matthew 24 and 25 and Luke 21. And this will continue as Jesus declared in Matthew twenty three thirty nine, until Israel finally cries out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Only then will they enter into their millennial rest, according to Isaiah 40, and verse 2, having received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Oh, dear friends, what a picture of, of God's judgment on sin and disobedience, as well as his blessings on faith and obedience. And here I'm reminded of the promises found in Isaiah 59 and 60. In Isaiah 59 you might recall after describing the multiplied transgressions of Israel and his judgment upon them that passage closes with a message a certain message of redemption and restoration we read of it in here in Isaiah 59 verse 20 here's the promise a Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob declares the Lord As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. And I would submit to you that that has not happened yet, but it will. And then the dominating theme in the next chapter, Isaiah 60 Is the restoration as well as the world supremacy of the nation of Israel beginning in verse 1 arise shine for your light has come the glory of the Lord has risen upon you for behold darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising Verses four through nine goes on to describe their return to their promised land after the worldwide dispersion and how the nations that once oppressed them will, will come and pay homage to them as God's chosen people and how God will, will contribute to their prosperity and, and the adornment of the sanctuary of their God. The days of apostasy are over. The days of idolatry and destruction and exile are over. Now, back to Daniel 12, verse 8. As for me, Daniel said, I heard, but I could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? Outcome in Hebrew can be translated the final end. In other words, what will be the nature of these events that characterize this outcome? Obviously, he's thinking, you know, when... When will my people finally be delivered from all of this? And I'm sure he's going back to, to what he saw in Daniel 7 with respect to the little horn, the Antichrist. And from the time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Chapter 12 and verse 1. What, what, what's going to happen to my people during this time? And here's what the angel said to him. I've had professors say this to me before, I remember. Go your way, Daniel. In other words, stop, that's enough. Literally in the Hebrew, go, Daniel. What it means is end the conversation. You're just trying to satisfy your own curiosity. Be content with what I've given you here. For these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. So to be sure, all those who will experience these things during that day will find comfort in what God has revealed. I also find it interesting that 600 years later, do you realize God answered Daniel's inquiry through the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos in the Apocalypse of Jesu Christu, the revealing of Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation. He gives us many, many more details, not all, but many more details. By the way, there's a great lesson to be learned here, I believe. And that is this. God simply doesn't give us all of the details. He doesn't tell us everything. And you know, for good reason. We wouldn't understand it if he did. And we may not like it if he did. He doesn't want to put up with all of that. He gives us, however, all we need to know. And in that we need to be content. And this is true not only with Bible prophecy, but with all the great doctrines of Scripture. I mean... I can't explain how in creation He speaks things into existence. Well, I'd love to know how that works, wouldn't you? He's done. Tell me. I, I I don't understand the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the incarnation. I don't understand the the the, the doctrine of, of 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 providence. What a miracle that is! I don't understand why He saves some and not all. I can't harmonize man's responsibility and salvation, and God's. Unconditional sovereign election. In fact, in Romans 9, he says, hey, don't even ask that question. I mean, you're you're like a pot, and you don't ask the potter why you made me that way. You know, you're, you're just, frankly, a dumb pot. So just don't even go there. And by the way, folks, as soon as you try to untie these Gordian knots that we see in Scripture, the ones that God has tied, you cease to be Biblical. And you start making stuff up. As soon as you try to explain the unexplainable mysteries of God, as soon as you try to penetrate the unpenetrable, you deify yourself. And you put yourself into a position where now I am going to explain what God has done. And then you end up twisting the scriptures to support your premises and you play the fool like all false teachers it's kind of like asking a kindergartner to explain the nature of black holes and and wormholes in the unif- universe you know what they say may sound brilliant but in the end their insight is on par with that of a dung beetle trying to explain quantum theory you know that's about and by the way their contribution To theology is about as noble. So, and that's what false teachers tend to do. By the way, I didn't mean to insult dung beetles, but (laughs) I think you get the point. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Now, the angel doesn't get into specifics pertaining to the outcome of these events, as Daniel inquired. But he does say this. Notice verse 10. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. So he's referring here to the Lord's chastening work on Israel. In fact, these same three words are used in Daniel 11.35, when he described uh, God's his judgment upon Israel by the Gentiles following the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes. So again, verse 10, many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. Then he says this, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. And of course, spiritual blindness is one of the chief characteristics of the unregenerate. They simply cannot see the light of the glory of Christ Jesus said in John 9 39 speaking to the Pharisees for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and he adds this that those who see may become blind which is an ironic way of him saying those who think they walk in the light but in fact, walk in the darkness will be those that I will further harden. Because of their rebellion, he judicially hardens the hearts of those who hear the truth and reject the truth. It's for this reason in 2 Timothy 4.4, 4, Paul tells Timothy and all of us that, that the unregenerate will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside unto myths. And the grammar there suggests that they will do this without an awareness of their desertion. And then they will become consumed by the lies that they embrace. By the way, how else can you explain the stuff that we see in our world today? Just absolutely amazing. I mean, now we've got drag queens in so-called churches leading children in Bible studies. I've heard of sermons where they're trying to explain to the congregation how we need to be careful not to misgender some, you know, male buttercup who thinks he's a female or some controlling feminazi who thinks she's a man. You know, I mean, it's just, it, it's just beyond our ability to comprehend. These people need Christ, dear friends, and only he can give them the light of truth. It's for this reason that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them. for He is spiritually appraised. Scripture's not their spiritual authority. They are, as well as the culture in which they live, which denies and distorts the truth. So back to the text as we wrap it up this morning. When the Antichrist seizes control, And these catastrophic judgments come upon the world in the tribulation, especially upon Israel. Verse 10 says, many will be purged and purified and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. And none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. In other other words, the elect of God, by his grace, will turn to the truths of Scripture. They will be saved. They will turn to Daniel's prophecies. They will be able to embrace the truths that God has revealed. According to Zechariah 13 and verse 8, we know that one-third of the Jews will survive. That means two-thirds will be killed. He says there, Zechariah 13:8, and I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. So I'm sure Daniel is comforted now with this information, that those who have insight will understand, that his people will be able to understand what God has said. They will be able to read these prophecies that he must now conceal. And then the angel adds this in verse 11. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, now we know that. That's when the Antichrist establishes himself to be God and defiles the restored Jewish temple. You read about it in Daniel nine twenty-seven, Matthew twenty-four, fifteen. When that happens, he says, There will be one thousand two hundred and ninety days. Now, what's interesting here is in other places we know that the Great Tribulation is three and a half years, twelve hundred and sixty days. Time, times, and a half a time. Daniel 7.25, for example. Revelation 11.3 and 12.6, it is 1,260 days. So what's the deal here? Is this a misprint? Why does it say 1,290 days in this passage? Now, some expositors suggest that we need to take this symbolically, that these numbers have no specific meaning. As I argued earlier in this exposition, I don't interpret scripture that way Um, it would make no sense to me why in several passage would it be 1260 and then here in verse 11 1290 and as we're going to see in verse 12 1335 there's something going on here all these numbers are too unique and too close to being the same length to justify a symbolic meaning moreover in Daniel 8 and verse 14 2,300 days are mentioned and that was proven to be absolutely precise according to history. So why the additional 30 days? Well, we can't say for sure. God doesn't tell us. But I think it is reasonable to say that given the unimaginable destruction and carnage upon the earth that will exist when Christ returns and as a result of his return, This is probably a time period needed to do one of two things, maybe both. First of all, it may be a reference to a 30-day period for cleansing or purifying the temple of God, as did Judas Maccabeus and his army uh, did after defeating Antiochus Epiphanes in 164 BC after they defiled the temple. Read about that in 1 Maccabees 4, verses 36 through 51. We also know, for example, in 2 Chronicles 30, beginning at verse 2, we read about something similar when King Hezekiah postponed the celebration of the Passover for one month, quote, because the priests had not consecrated themselves in sufficient numbers, nor had the people been gathered to Jerusalem. Thus this thing was right in the sight of the king and all the assembly. It might also require another 30 days needed to complete the judgment of Christ to determine who will be permitted to enter the kingdom and who will be not permitted. We read about that in Matthew 25:31 and so forth. Both of these are possibilities. We can't say for sure. But then he says this in verse 12, how blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. Now, let's look at this closely just for a moment. Keeps waiting. It could be translated. One who keeps waiting earnestly. That's the idea in the original language. And the term "attains to" comes from a root word that means "to touch." And here the imperfect form of this means "he will touch." In other words, he will gain with effort. So a paraphrase of what is saying here is this: "How blessed is he who keeps waiting earnestly and is finally able to touch the, 1335th day." Hmm. Why 133.5? I mean, come on, that's 45 days longer than the 1,290. 75 days longer than the 1,260-day duration of Daniel, the end of Daniel's 70th week. So what's going on here? Well, once again, God doesn't tell us, but I think it's safe to assume... That this will be another forty five days that is necessary for God to establish the govern- governmental aspects of christ's reign, his rule, and a time to place all of the kingdom's citizens, all of us in our proper realm and how we are going to function, place us in the regions of our inheritance, and so forth. And we get a hint of this in verse thirteen, but as for you, go your way to the end, go your way to the end technically here the imperfect word go go parallels the same term in verse 9 where he is told go your way Daniel in this conversation and so forth Um, and so it's, it's here he says then you will enter the rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age and so I believe it's referring to that same type of thing Um, After the tribulation days are complete, Daniel, along with the Old Testament saints, are going to be resurrected. They're going to be given their allotted portion in the millennial kingdom. You will recall in Colossians 1 and verse 12, Paul says, Give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The term inheritance, kleros in the original language, speaks of an allotment especially according to the terms of a will. Do you realize the Father has a will and a portion of it has your name on it, has my name on it, the saints in light? And in that text, Paul reaches back in the Old Testament by alluding to the specific land allotments that were given to the Israelites when they entered the land of Canaan. Read about it in Numbers 26 and 33. So inheritance can literally be translated portion of the lot. And the text says the Father has qualified. Literally, it means authorized us, according to his grace, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, which is a saints in light is a, 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 a synonym for the kingdom of God in heaven. And in this glorious kingdom, beloved, each believer will be given a specific portion of the total divine inheritance. That is what is will to us. This will include specific privileges and possessions, spiritual blessings beyond our ability to comprehend. Colossians 3.24, we read, Know that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance. My, I can't wait. Ephesians 1.11, Because of our Father's great mercy, we have obtained an inheritance. Hebrews 9.15, Those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And I especially rejoice in what Peter said, that we have hope to obtain an inheritance, 1 Peter 1.4, which denotes property, denotes possession. Oh, dear Christian, may we all dare to be a Daniel in these difficult days, knowing what God has promised, what is coming. And without question, Daniel would echo the testimony of the Apostle Paul and say, I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Second Timothy 1.12 And with the Apostle John we can all say come Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father truly your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path and as we Contemplate the glories of your grace and the power of your sovereign election and all that you have planned, not only for Israel, but for the church, for all of us who have been grafted into the rich root of Abrahamic blessing. Lord, how we celebrate these things. And may we all live lives that are pleasing to you, that manifest the glory of Christ, that others might see him through us. We thank you, we rejoice in these great truths, and we pray that indeed you will come quickly. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.